This is Taiwan Talk. This is Taiwan Talk on ICRT. Welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm Eric Smith, and today I am sitting on the Rainbow Warrior 3. This is absolutely awesome. I'm here with the campaign manager, Malcolm Wren. Thank you so much for talking with us today. And I have to say, I'm feeling a little, a little starstruck, a little <laughs> giddy. Uh, the Rainbow Warrior has such an amazing history, and if you've uh, followed it over the, the decades, you know, it's, it, for me personally, this is just awesome to be sitting on this ship right now. Yeah, well, welcome aboard, Eric. It's uh, it's great to have you here, and um, I certainly uh, know the emo- uh, emotions that you talk about, and I've felt it myself. It is a, a ship of great history, and um, and having achieved a, gr- a lot of great things, and um, in its time. Speaking of that history, I think some of our listeners may be uh, either unaware or perhaps too young to uh, <laughs> remember some of the uh, earlier incarnations of the Rainbow Warrior. I wonder if you could walk us through that real quick, including the original Rainbow Warrior and its rather tragic uh, history. Yeah, sure. Look, the, the first Rainbow Warrior came into, um, into Greenpeace life in 1977. It was an old fishing boat um, that a, a group of volunteers at the time uh, managed to scrape together enough money through you know, charity benefits and a few donations and probably a bit of savings of their own and uh, bought and converted into um, use for, for Greenpeace. Uh, it was used over the next eight years to confront um, everything from whaling ships um, all over the world to uh, fishing grounds all over the world to dumping of nuclear waste at sea and um, and particularly famous for protesting against um, nuclear testing in the Pacific and in 1985 after a mission to the Marshall Islands and um, into an island called Rongelap in particular um, it, where it was evacuating people that were victims of friend, uh, US nuclear testing in the 1950s their home was uh, basically contaminated and ev- evacuated them to a to a new uh, place to live. Is that island live. still contaminated? They are just about starting to go back. Wow! There now. It's um, there's a bit of controversy as to whether it's a good thing to go back or not. But of course, it's their home and it's been their home for hundreds of years. So the uh, you know the elders are very keen to go home. The younger people aren't so sure it's a good idea. But slowly but surely, they're sort of um, going back there and trying to create a livelihood again. Um, um, it's certainly uh, one of the sort of not so heard about uh, impacts of nuclear testing. So after the Americans uh, did their damage, then came the French. Yeah, and they moved into a place around French Polynesia and, and particularly Muroa Atoll, um, where they had been testing for some time. They did a lot of atmospheric tests um, initially, the big bombs in the air, uh, before moving their tests underground. And in 1985, they had a series of tests planned um, in underground testing that. Greenpeace was going to go out and bear witness to and to try and confront and and stop. On the way to do that, they pulled into Auckland Harbour and to resupply and you know, pick up volunteers and campaigners before heading out. And a few days later, a bomb exploded on the uh, hull of the Rainbow Warrior, uh, sinking the ship and killing our photographer Fernando Pereira in a, in a really tragic episode. And later this incident was traced back to French secret agents. That's right. The Secret Service from, um, as part of the French government were, had been sent and had um, infiltrated the local Greenpeace office. So, you know, it was a very open office, very welcoming, and uh, they infiltrated it, fi- found out as much information as they could, and, uh, yeah, divers went along one night and stuck a 
couple of bombs on the side of it that exploded sort of just before midnight. And in the end, did the French ever apologize, compensate? What what was the result? Yeah, look, there was um, a, a range of results. Uh, the the Secret Service were remarkably easily found out to be um, responsible for it, and the and two people that were caught from it were sentenced to um, some jail time that they served on a lovely French um, island before <laughs> being released early, just a few few years later. I see. Um, the, there was there was certainly some ramifications back in France, and the Defence Minister had to resign, and there was a yeah, there was certainly a big compensation payout. I'm not sure that there was ever an apology as such. So, mm. uh, yeah. But the perhaps the biggest uh, fallout, if I can use the term, was just a, it, it gave a lot of uh, awareness to the cause and sort of, in some ways, it uh, brought about uh, good, if you can say that, out yeah. of a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly um, take the point. And it was really a turning point in Greenpeace's history. It went from being a, an organization that was sort of seen to be from its origins of hippiedom. Right, like, right. Um, and all of a sudden uh, made kind of people aware that you know, there was a big enough problem that a French government would... Would bother to do this. Would bother exactly. to do this, yeah. 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 I, I think it um, used a lot of people, and all of a sudden people that didn't necessarily speak up spoke up at their outrage of, um, of the actions of the, of the French government. And for Greenpeace it meant um, a lot more support and attention. Um, it, it said that basically their ways of working in terms of uh, going out and being at the point of... Uh, of these problems was a was a worthy thing to do, and that there were a lot of people behind them. And, and in many ways, really, it was the beginning of the end of nuclear testing. Uh, what we saw rapidly after that was a, um, a steep decline in the amount of tests. And, um, and in 1995, the second Rainbow Warrior that was bought from the proceeds of the um, of the compensation oh. sailed back to Muraroa when the French decided that they wanted to test again. Um, and this time, when they arrived um, again. They had sailed into the test zone to stop the test, but this time there were millions of people all around the world that rose up in outcry, and we saw massive protests on the streets and boycotts of French products. So here we have a story of kind of proving that it is possible to make a difference for one little fishing boat to make a difference in the world. Absolutely, and I think for... I've talked to a number of crew members that were on board that day, and in fact that was one of the things that they took from it, is that, you know, if if someone would go to all of this trouble to uh, send a secret service, a national secret service down into a foreign country um, and bomb a ship, kill somebody, they must be having an impact. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. and, um, and as much as they lost a, you know, a very dear friend that they've been sailing with, they took an incredible resolve out of that and, um, and the campaigns that Greenpeace took um, went to a whole other scale again. Greenpeace's Rainbow Warrior will be stopping by Tainan's Anping Harbor this coming weekend. Reporting for ICRT's Taiwan Talk, I'm Eric Smith. This is Taiwan Talk. This is Taiwan Talk on ICRT. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Talk. I'm Eric Smith, and today we're back with Greenpeace's Malcolm Wren as we continue an interview from the deck of the group's flagship, the Rainbow Warrior. So here we are on the third incarnation of the Rainbow Warrior, and this ship is a marvel of uh, environmental design and shipbuilding engineering. Yeah, that's right. This is the first 
time that Greenpeace has been able to purpose build a ship done entirely through the donations of individuals from around the world um, literally thousands and thousands of people donating um, a few dollars here and a few dollars there uh, enabled us to, to build this ship and it's um, been built with its mission in mind in terms of travelling the world and um, going out to bear witness or confront um, environmental crime. Speaking of confront, do you guys still do that? Do you still get in front of whaling ships? That aggressive element, is that still a part of Greenpeace's actions? Yeah, look, I think it's a proactive element, and it's, and certainly, absolutely. We'll, you would have seen, may have seen actions over the last year, non-violent direct actions, which have been confronting the, the oil industry and their relentless march into the Arctic. It focused um, a lot of people's attention, and over the next 18 months, while well, we've continued that campaign of public awareness and education, over 3 million people have joined the campaign to save the Arctic. And uh, we're actually sitting right now underneath a canopy that is a sail. This is a, it's a metal ship. I mean, it's about the size of, I don't know, perhaps a a small ferry or a large yacht. But you have a sailing, actual good old-fashioned sails on this ship. Yeah, so one of the features that we were most keen on was to be able to reduce our uh, fossil fuel use on board the ship. This ship here has... Um, a capability of spending most of its time sailing and so we not only do we design its routes and uh, its itineraries to be able to take advantage of the prevailing winds uh, the actual design of the ship um, has used a lot of technological advances to be able to to do that even more so so you were saying you got you, you have three options you have the wind then you have like a small hybrid engine that could help push a little bit that's right and we're, and we're using the the sails and um the smaller engine we we'll say the sails most of the time whenever we can and the sails and, and engine combined probably up to sort of 80 to 90 percent of the time nice. so it's only in the in the worst weather that we're really using the the main diesel engines um that uh, most most boats would have all right, so you guys are here in Geelong, Taiwan. Yes. Why? Why? Well, um, the Rainbow Warriors come to work with our local office here, and the theme of our tour is a better future together. So we've come here to basically um, talk about not just one campaign, but all of the work that we do, which is all a- about the world that we want to live in in the future, the world that we want our children and their children to inherit. And the way that we're going to get there is by as many people, as many organisations and governments and decision makers working together towards that goal. And we were talking earlier about a problem that I think many people face, and that is this sort of feeling of helplessness. Yesterday I saw an article that said by 2040, New York and Miami will be underwater and, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And you're tempted to just sort of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, you know, forget it. Well, I might as well just turn on the air con and enjoy, <laughs> enjoy my, my final days, you know. How do you get through to a person like me who feels this way too often? I certainly understand the dynamic that you're talking about. A lot of uh, media stories are best sold with sensational headlines yep, and bad yep, news. There's, yep. no, there's no doubt about that. And I guess what we want to do is come here and talk about the good news. And I think so we want to use whatever means that we can to be able to say, look, there is hope. There is a way of doing things. The, the solutions that we have are now at hand. And indeed, I think in terms of the history of the world, we're kind of in a place right now where we can actually have those, reach out to those technological solutions 
um, it just means that we need to make a decision to embrace them. The other thing that we want to do while here in Taiwan is to talk to people about the role that they can play in it because we all have um, an incredible amount of power. Uh, just through choices. Through choices that we make. And, and those choices might be choices as consumers. So there's, there's certainly a trend um, of what you might call consumer action um, that's been... Uh, becoming more and more evident and has had played major roles in uh, forcing uh, plastics manufacturers to use less toxic chemicals and for energy providers to provide more renewable options and uh, for forestry uh, products companies to be able to you know, not use rainforests and, and a lot of that has become because millions of people around the world have together said we want to do it a different way. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a really important thing that we're trying to sort of communicate today is their, their role as consumers. The other really important way that, that people have power is, is as citizens. You know, I think uh, one thing that our, our leaders need to hear is that you know, we want to do things differently. And I think uh, people have an incredible amount of power as voters yeah. and as constituents. In places like Taiwan where there is a democracy and um, you can reach out and, and express your voice, sometimes that feels like it's not being listened to. But I think the history of social change and the way that things have been improved for the better shows again and again that if you keep on talking, eventually people are going to listen. Thanks again for listening to Taiwan Talk. All of our episodes are available as podcasts on iTunes or the ICRT website. Reporting for ICRT, I'm Eric Smith.